Welcome to the podcast of Sound Medicine, Public Radio's weekly magazine about medicine and health. I'm your host, Barbara Lewis. This free podcast is made possible by Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, Indiana's premier urban health and life sciences campus, IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. I'm Barbara Lewis. Coming up next on Sound Medicine, the big picture of where precision medicine is going and what it will mean. We are going to engage well over a million people to help us tackle these big problems in biomedical research. Plus, we'll check in with a VA center leader on what's changed in the past year. We were at about 45 days for a new patient to get a primary care appointment. We now have appointments available this week for new patients asking for care. A unique cancer study led by veterinarians. What's nice about this program, too, is that these are pet dogs. They're shelter dogs that need someone and need medical care and need a home. How palliative care can employ music to make patients more comfortable. I might start out playing a a dance music and see, uh uh-oh, their heart rate's kind of going up. I better slow it down. And a Grace Notes essay, Learning How to Deal with Loss. I am old enough now that people ask me, are your parents still living? It's all coming up next on this final episode of Sound Medicine. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome to the very last episode of Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis, and for 15 years, I've been your host for Public Radio's weekly news magazine about medicine and health. This will be our last program, but let's start off by looking forward, not back. For more than a decade, one of the most used phrases to describe the next chapter of healthcare has been precision medicine. In January, President Obama called for a major push to move medicine away from the one size fits all approach to an era which drugs and other treatments are crafted to fit individuals. Perhaps the best person to explain what the Precision Medicine Initiative will mean is Dr. Eric Green. He is director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Green, welcome to Sound Medicine. Happy to be here. So before we start discussing precision medicine, we'd love to get a a brief definition from you about what it is and, and how it really differs from how medicine is generally practiced now. Yeah, I think it's an important thing to talk about to start the conversation. Um, I mean, as a physician, I can tell you it's not like we don't attempt to be precise in the practice of medicine. But the truth of the matter is, for most of the things that we do in medicine now, uh, we act as if an average patient is in front of you because that's the best tools we have available to us. When we pick medications, when we pick other types of therapies, We make our best judgments based on data that we have and information we have of the average patient. Uh, We can do better than that, and we know of examples where we do better than that. Uh, For centuries, we've been able to give people prescription eyeglasses, and that's an example of being more precise. Starting a little over 100 years ago, we started doing blood transfusions more precisely by giving people the right type of blood. But there's a whole list of things that could be done more precisely in the practice of medicine. Everything from picking the right medication and the right dose for a patient to how we treat diseases like cancer to a variety of other medical decisions that are made every day. Uh, And this has come on because of some major scientific advances over the last 10 and 20 years. Let's talk a little bit about cancer. In a a recent paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, the director of the NIH, Francis Collins, said some targeted treatments for cancer have shown spectacular benefits. Um, What was he referring to? Well, he's referring to some of the earliest wins in using information about a specific tumor's genomic makeup, the DNA in the tumor, that has been deranged, has has changed. The reason why the tumor is growing out of control is because there have been changes in the DNA in those cells. And because of tools and technologies of genomics, especially over the last 10 years, we are now able to look and study in a clinical way the genome of that tumor. And that has opened our eyes to all sorts of important information 
and in, for some specific types of cancer, truly has led to some spectacular benefits in that we can more precisely determine the subtype of cancer, and we can more precisely determine what's broken in those tumors, and therefore more precisely decide uh, the best drug to use or the best treatment regimen to use. But I really want to stress these early wins are just the tip of the iceberg. And we believe that we are now in a position over the next 5, 10, 20 years to generalize this approach to dozens and dozens of different types of cancer. So when you have a, a tumor that gets looked at and we know the, the genomic makeup of that tumor, do we have the knowledge to really match it up with the exact medicines that will help? Well, again, early days, but the early examples are inspirational because for some of the specific examples that have been shown to be successful, we've gone from being essentially blind to the best way to treat it, that particular type of cancer, to knowing exactly what pathway, what circuitry is broken in those cells, and therefore what drugs can overcome that deficiency and sort of head off the tumor in a way that uh, really is an effective treatment. Again, we know the underlying biology of what's gone wrong, um, whereas, you know, 10 years ago we were blind to that. We were just pouring poisons in people just hoping that on average some of the people would benefit from this. For its short-term goals, this Precision Medicine Initiative will focus on cancer. So what are the current obstacles in cancer treatment that precision medicine researchers will really be trying to solve here? Any examples? Yeah, well, the Precision Medicine Initiative has as its earliest goals uh, an acceleration in using genomic approaches for cancer care. And, and I think some of the biggest obstacles are really refining these approaches. We have some initial examples where things look quite promising for a limited set of cancers. And now we really want to expand not only the size of the studies to really refine that approach and even make it more precise for those types of cancer, but more importantly, to bring this to the fore for more different types of cancer and really accelerate that process in a very aggressive way. Okay, I'm going to bring up a word that we in the media love. Um, I think scientists and, and physicians and, and cancer researchers hate, and that's the word breakthroughs. <laughs> but I was wondering, you mentioned for some cancers, is there a particular cancer that you think precision medicine is very close or is making any kind of breakthroughs now? Well, some of the early wins have certainly been in certain types of pediatric uh, cancers yeah. and certain types of blood cancers, leukemias in particular, and then some examples of breast cancer. Uh, you know, I'm not a cancer researcher. I don't have as much expertise as, as many of my colleagues here in the National Cancer Institute. But some of these earliest examples have, have just been striking, and you see the mortality rate go down considerably by using these approaches. Okay. So what are the moving pieces uh, that this initiative would require? I mean, such as academic researchers and the pharmaceutical industry, and, and have they been calling for, for this type of project? I think when you're going to see the other component of the Precision Medicine Initiative moving beyond the cancer component to what we're calling the U.S. National Cohort, it is absolutely an audacious endeavor that will involve not only the different sectors you just mentioned, academic sector and private sector and government researchers, it's also going to involve people, the communities, society, Americans. This is going to be absolutely a, a participant-driven endeavor as well, where we are going to engage well over a million people to join forces to help us try to tackle these big problems in biomedical research. So one, um, so one million Americans asked to participate in, in yeah. this study, or, or will be when, when you're ready. Has any medical study on this scale been attempted before? Not quite on this scale. Uh, so once again, we're Americans. We do things big and bold. But we're also um, a melting pot of individuals, and we have a lot of people that have come from all different parts of the world here in America, and we need to make sure that when we do these studies, we have appropriate diversity of all the participants, so everyone's represented based on their geographical origins in particular. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why the study is as large as it is. Uh, to directly answer your question, no study of this type is quite as large, but it's not to say there aren't other studies, in particular in other countries, like in England and a few other countries where similar studies have been launched. Some are actually quite far along doing similar things, just not at this scale. But I, I should really emphasize the other reason we need to do it at this scale is from 
some findings we are learning more and more in recent years are, that are quite revealing indicate to us that for a lot of diseases, and we just talked about cancer, but let's talk about other very common diseases that fill hospitals and clinics around the world, diseases like diabetes, diseases like hypertension, uh, mental illness, um, cardiovascular disease, and so forth. One thing is very clear is that every one of those diseases I just named actually are dozens of sub-diseases. And what's very clear is to untangle the unique aspects both of the genomics and the lifestyle and environmental contributions to those subtypes of each of those diseases will require studies of tens of thousands of individuals, actually probably hundreds of thousands of individuals. So to really get at all of these important contributions to human disease so that we can be precise to understand disease and treat disease is going to require scale that will need a cohort of at least a million individuals. I'm speaking with Dr. Eric Green, director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, and we're talking about the Precision Medicine Initiative, which is changing the way doctors treat cancer and other diseases. So you have to be able to look at all this data, this immense amount of data. You have to be able to at least somewhat cost-effectively map this genomic material of these million uh, Americans. What has changed in the recent years that has made us able to do this? Well, let me give you a few examples of the difference between now and 10 years ago. 10 years ago, it cost us millions and millions of dollars to sequence a human genome to reveal all the letters of a given person's genetic blueprint. Millions and millions of dollars. Today, that costs only a few thousand dollars, and the cost is dropping even more and will continue to. 10 years ago, only about 20 to 30 percent of healthcare providers in the United States use electronic health records. Today, that figure is over 95%, which means we are, on a daily basis, accumulating important medical information about patients that we can take advantage of and use for research purposes. You know, we didn't hear about a Fitbit 10 years ago. In fact, we were barely familiar with smartphones 10 years ago. And now, think of all the exciting technologies that are really early days, but can you imagine where they're heading now that today, you know, 160 million people carry smartphones compared to only a million 10 years ago. And we could imagine in five or 10 years, an even greater fraction of Americans will carry smartphones. Those can become devices that can monitor our physiology, can monitor our lifestyle, and can monitor our environmental exposures. And, and we imagine harnessing those technologies to collect data as part of research. And so I think it's the constellation of genomic advances, electronic health record availability, and new technologies that are in early days that'll be spectacularly exciting to use five and 10 years from now that really are key elements of this cohort study. And that will result in the generation of an immense amount of data, which will be really exciting to analyze and will be very revealing to what we need to know about human health and disease. So provided this initiative gets funding from Congress, um, what would the initial steps be to get it up and running? Well, we're in an intense planning phase now. The president has requested money in his fiscal 2016 budget for the initiative to get launched. In order to accomplish that, we need to have a plan for the early stages to implement actually beginning of next fiscal year, essentially, which is basically October 1 or so. So we're, we're starting to piece all that together quite aggressively now. Um, the National Cancer Institute has very good idea on what exactly needs to be done on the cancer element, and they are hard at work at getting ready if additional funds come available to use those to accelerate progress in cancer genomics. On the cohort, we are currently now in a phase trying to make lists of all the hard questions that need to be asked and then having workshops and meetings with experts and, and using our advisors to really help flesh out some of the details. To be honest with you, uh, we're not going to start building this cohort without doing a number of important pilot studies and feasibility studies to learn some important early uh, lessons of how exactly to do this. Uh, we'll start to build it slowly, but I think the next few years will be a combination of you know early building of the cohort, but also more importantly, in many ways, some early studies to help answer fundamental questions so that we can then scale up when the appropriate time comes that we know exactly how to collect the individuals, recruit the million individuals, and, and get going on the science. 
Before I let you go, two quick questions. So I think we did give a lot of credit to the 2003 Human Genome Project. But were there things that we haven't covered that that Human Genome Project really accomplished? As somebody who participated in the Human Genome Project uh, from beginning to end, um, I can tell you a lot of the successes of the Genome Project and the subsequent work that's gone on in genomics over the last 12 or 13 years has served as a foundation for this precision medicine initiative. And not only is it the science of genomics that is propelling forward some of the ideas for the precision medicine initiative, but also the style with which the project is being done. I mean, if you notice that, you know, there's a number of things that you asked me that I told you, well, we have to flesh out the details, we've got to work out the plan. I should really tell you and tell your listeners how similar this is to what things were like exactly 25 years ago. So if you go back 25 years, almost to the day, uh, we were just about six or seven months away from launching the Human Genome Project. This big audacious effort announced publicly, and it was very clear you know, what we were gonna try to do. But I could tell you quite candidly that six or seven months before it started, we really didn't know precisely what we were gonna do or how we were gonna do it. Uh, we knew vague ideas, but we knew that we were going to have to constantly be strategizing, figuring out exactly the best approach, and every once in a while rip up the current plan and, and create a new one. And that's exactly what we did over the 13-year period of the Human Genome Project. 25 years ago, did a lot of you predict what the outcome would be? I don't think any of us 25 years ago who were, especially my, my, my peers, where we were pinning our early career to this um, project uh, could have a really firm idea of what it was going to look like. It seemed that it could sort of be seismic. It was going to really change uh, many things. Um, it's exceeded my wildest dreams in terms of all the opportunities. In many ways, I think the Precision Medicine Initiative is yet another um, uh, thing that sort of signifies the success of the Genome Project. And so I would once again say that I can imagine how exciting and what the great opportunities will be and what some of the triumphs will come out of the work of the Precision Medicine Initiative. But I wouldn't dare say today I could fully understand all the things that are going to come out of it because they'll probably even be more spectacular than I can envision today. All right. Well, Dr. Eric Green, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for taking the time. Happy to be here. Dr. Eric Green is the director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, part of the National Institutes of Health. I'm Eric Metcalf, and your sound medicine stat is 30. Military kids may have a lot that they miss given their connection to a workforce that tends to move a lot. They may miss their old classmates. They may miss parents who are deployed. And a new study shows they may miss some vaccinations. The researchers looked at toddlers and preschoolers in the National Vaccination Survey. They found that the kids who were military dependents appeared to be 30%. 30! More likely to be behind on their shots compared to kids in general. Military families get sent to a new home, on average, every 2.9 years. Perhaps in all the excitement of moving around, some of these kids missed some vaccinations along the way. Or maybe the kids were actually vaccinated, but their shot records got misplaced. The experts aren't sure. But since the germs these kids encounter will know if they're vaccinated or not, both issues deserve fixing. That has been the number 30 Sound Medicine listeners, and I have been Eric Metcalf. Coming up, we'll check in on some new cancer trials for dogs. What's nice about this program, too, is that these are pet dogs. They're shelter dogs that need someone and need medical care and need a home. And later, the role music can play in palliative care. I might start out playing a, a dance music and see, uh-oh, their heart rate's kind of going up. I better slow it down. You're listening to Sound Medicine. Underwriting for Sound Medicine's health news headlines comes from Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine. More information at marion.edu slash medical school. I'm Jill Dittmeyer with this week's health news headlines. 
TV's Dr. Oz fired back this week at critics who claim the treatments and cures he promotes on his TV show are doing more for his wealth than his viewers' health. A group of doctors sent a letter to Columbia University last week asking that Oz be removed from his position as vice chair of surgery because they claim he continues to promote quackery. Dr. Oz says he is not going to let their opinions determine his show content. In case you were still wondering, a new 11-year study published this week in JAMA shows once again that there is no link between the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine and an increased risk of autism. This one followed 100,000 children who received either none, one, or both of the recommended two doses of MMR vaccine. Researchers at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center shared a survey this week that finds half of women who have cancer in one breast but no gene mutations that increase their risk still want to remove the healthy breast to avoid a second cancer. Now, that rate may be influenced by decisions from high-profile women such as Angelina Jolie-Pitt and Rita Wilson. But those same surgeons say that the risk of an extra surgery often outweighs the potential benefit of preventing further cancer. And finally, another case of unintended consequences. An Australian study found children aged 4 to 7 in child care settings with mandatory nap times of an hour or more sleep less at night than other kids. And when those children graduated to no naps, their nighttime sleeps were still shorter, which means someone's going to have to give up Facebook time, those preschool teachers or the kids' parents. Reporting for Sound Medicine News, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You're listening to Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. The Veterans Administration healthcare system has had a rough year with accusations of long wait times and hard-to-navigate bureaucracy that meant many veterans weren't getting the care they needed. The VA is the nation's biggest healthcare system with more than 150 medical centers and 1,400 outpatient clinics. So fixing the problems won't happen instantly. Tom Matice is retiring soon as director of the Routabush VA Medical Center in Indianapolis. We sat down with him recently to see what improvements have been made so far. The Department of Defense is doing a much better job at letting uh, military members as they're about to be demobilized or discharged know what their veterans' benefits are, know how to get in touch with us, make a smooth transition. We've implemented a seamless transition integrated care clinic that reaches out to new veterans and helps them integrate their care into the VA so it's a seamless transition. It's a very easy front door for veterans to come and, and initiate their care with the VA. So we're doing a much better job in both agencies of getting the veterans in, into the care that they need. And do you track the success of that? I mean, can you compare decades ago to, to now? On we don't really have good numbers for previous generations, but we know over 50% of the discharged veterans, the new veterans, are coming to us immediately for care. So very high penetration rates with the new veterans. So the VA found itself in hot water um, in 2014 over long wait times, which some administrators addressed by manipulating data or just not putting patients on waiting lists. How did those revelations affect the way the VA facility in Indianapolis serves its patients? First off, I want to say that we were not impacted by any of those allegations of improprieties within the scheduling practices here. So um, we were following the rules and doing what we should have. But across the country, as well as at Routabush, we really took a look at how we were scheduling patients, making sure that we were getting them appointments as close to their desired date as possible. So we were at about 45 days for a new patient to get a primary care appointment. We now have appointments available this week for new patients asking for care. Um, we'd always been tracking our availability of specialty clinics um, and had been at about 98% within 14 days consistently. So we were doing a really good job of getting patients into specialty clinics um, across the board, and we've continued that practice. We have partnered with um, some community providers for those areas where we don't have enough capacity within the Routabush, um, areas like uh, screening colonoscopies, sleep studies, some optometry exams, things like that. So we are working with some community providers to make sure that we have the capacity to take care of our patients. And our, our real goal is to get all 
appointments seen within the VA where we have the capability, so increasing our capacity there, as well as making sure that we're seeing those patients very, very timely. So did you have to change any kind of system? It sounded like you went from maybe 45 days out to you can see patients now, new patients right. in within a week. So we have added new providers mostly, uh, both in primary care and in a lot of our specialty clinics. We've added new providers, and so that has given us the increased capacity that we need to see more patients on a timely basis. We've caught you at an important moment in your career. You're about to retire. So as you look back at your time in the VA, what are the most important ways your facility has changed? For about 12 years now, Routabush VA has had a set of linked programs that we call Indie Excellence. And the main focuses of Indie Excellence have been these to make sure that we are providing the highest quality, safest patient care that we can, to make sure that we are seen by our patients as being very patient-friendly, customer-friendly, and to take care of each other as fellow employees. I think that has been a phenomenally successful program. If you look at our patient satisfaction scores, our quality scores, our employee satisfaction scores, all of those are in the top 10 to 15 percent in the comparators that we have available to us. And I think we've done an outstanding job in, in each of those areas, making sure that we are always looking at ourselves, always looking to improve, always looking for ways we can take one more step towards that that quality, that patient-centeredness, that employee satisfaction. And that's really what's been the hallmark of the changes in Routabush over the past dozen years or so. Okay, one last quick question. Um, plans for retirement? Sure. So um, I, I'm going to stay in the healthcare field. I love hospitals. I love healthcare. It's a great environment to be in. Um, if there's young people in school out there who are casting around trying to figure out something to do, uh, look at healthcare. It's a great world to be in. And so I'm going to stay involved in the healthcare community. I'm going to stay in Indianapolis, and the rest is still to be written. Okay. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Tom Matice is the outgoing director of the Routabush VA Medical Center in Indianapolis. We're shifting gears now to the world of animal medicine. So, Dr. Liz Murphy, it's always good to talk with you. Welcome back to Sound Medicine. It's nice to be back. Let's talk about cancer research and pets, because there seems to be this wonderful symbiotic relationship that we're having now between understanding cancer in animals and understanding cancer in humans. What are some of the advances being made? Well, there are a lot of things going on in the field of what's called comparative oncology. What's a little bit different recently is, whereas animal models have been used for a long time. A lot of times those animal models are mice, and mice are easy to study and um, have been used for many, many years. But in some cases, most recently, pet animals, dogs, have been used for some of this research. They go through, particularly for cancer, there is a genetic pool that can be identified. The canine genome was identified years ago. and they go through many of the same environmental influences that could have some impact on the development of cancer. Plus, their lifespan is, sadly, for those of us who own dogs, shorter than in people. But that means that cancer can be studied as it progresses more rapidly. So dogs are being used for a great deal of cancer research, especially research on breast cancer. Interesting. Why breast cancer? Well, breast cancer in dogs and breast cancer in humans have a lot of similarities. They're both hormonally responsive, and they can display a progression from benign to malignant. What people have been trying to research in human breast cancer is what genes regulate the progression of one tumor from benign to malignant and another tumor that just stays benign. In dogs, breast tumors are also hormonally responsive, but dogs have eight to 10 mammary glands, as opposed to um, we humans that just have the two. And those dogs can have multiple breast tumors in various stages of development in all of their mammary glands. 
So it gives researchers a unique opportunity to, st to study the genetics of those breast tumors and to try to identify the genetic regulation that allows a benign tumor to transform into a malignant tumor. How prevalent is breast cancer in dogs? Well, it depends on the age at which the dog has been spayed. When we spay a dog, we remove the ovaries and the uterus. And the ovaries, of course, are the source of estrogen and progesterone. In dogs, they have heat cycles. So they have a big surge of estrogen and progesterone about every six months or so. And that goes throughout their life. The interesting thing is that if you remove the ovaries and uterus from a, a female dog before she has a heat cycle, that dog's chances of getting breast cancer are less than 1%. If a dog is spayed after three heat cycles, just three surges of estrogen and progesterone, it's about a one in four chance. Wow, so I would think that a stray dog, you know, dogs that have been on the street, because most people will spay their pets, they are kind of ripe for um, investigation then. Yes, particularly, well, stray dogs, shelter dogs, dogs that have been in puppy mills, sadly, that have been bred many times. By the time a dog has had three heat cycles, she's only about 18 months to two years of age. And those female dogs can develop breast tumors very early on in life and throughout their life. Let's talk a little bit about clinical trials, because that's something I think it sounds new, that you would take your pet, and if the dog gets cancer, you could now enroll them in a clinical trial, which we always... You know, it, it seems like something that was only reserved for humans. <laughs> yes. Um, well, there is actually a very interesting program going on at the University of Pennsylvania's veterinary hospital, Ryan Veterinary Hospital. It's called the PenVet Shelter Canine Mammary Tumor Program. It was established in 2009. And it's kind of a, a wonderful, unique marriage of the parallels between human and veterinary medicine, and also it's a very big win-win situation for the shelter dogs that are enrolled in this program. It came about kind of serendipitously. There is an oncologist, Karen Sorenmo, at the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Oncology. She was consulted by a woman named Olga Troyaskaya, who is a professor of integrative genomics in the Department of Computer Science at Princeton. She had a dog that had cancer. She went to see Dr. Serenmo, and the two began to talk. And Dr. Serenmo was quite concerned about breast cancer in dogs, particularly those that she uh, knew of in shelters that had a, a high incidence of breast cancer. Dr. Troyaskaya has developed computer algorithms that help sort through the canine genome, and she is trying to determine what genes regulate the development uh, progression of breast tumors. So this program takes dogs out of shelters. Those that have mammary tumors are treated surgically and medically if they need chemotherapy, free of charge for their life. They place them in foster homes at first, and then they find permanent homes for them. The tumors are removed surgically and analyzed by Dr. Serenmo for their cellular characteristics, determining whether they're benign or cancerous and what different criteria of malignancy that tumor might have. Then some of the tissue samples are sent to Dr. Troyaskaya, and she is trying to identify the gene regulation that could regulate the uh, transformation of some of the benign tumors into malignant tumors. What's interesting, too, about this research is that it's very rare for a woman to develop more than one spontaneously occurring breast tumor, whereas in dogs, their 8 to 10 mammary glands can have many tumors at various stages of development. So they can evaluate without the individual dog's genetic variation being a problem that they have to kind of sort out. They just take the tumor and can look at those genes that allow that tumor to change. Whereas in women, since they don't develop more than one spontaneously occurring breast tumor, you have many individual women who have tissue samples that are being analyzed and that variation among the different women could have an impact in the regulation of those tumors. When the dog, you just have the one dog with many different tissue samples, all at different stages of development. So the genes that regulate the development 
can be identified much more easily. So this sounds like it has the potential to give cancer researchers a lot of information, a lot of good information. How far along are they in this? Well, they've enrolled their 100th dog in the program, and they are still analyzing the data from the different tissue samples. I don't believe they've identified all the genes that are important in this malignant transformation, but they're hoping that if they do identify these genes, they can look for similar genes in human breast tumor tissue to see if they're the same genes and to see if they go through the same regulation process for malignant transformation. As a veterinarian, are you excited about this research? Because it sounds like it will give oncologists treating their female patients a lot of information. But as someone who sees cancer in dogs every day in your practice, um, are you excited about this research as well? I'm really excited about this research because there are a lot of things that are being studied in dogs that we veterinarians use the information from. The funding for human research is a little bit higher than that for veterinary research, so we really do benefit from this. What's nice about this program, too, is that these are pet dogs. They're shelter dogs that need someone and need medical care and need a home, and they're not laboratory animals, so they are benefiting from this research. They're not being used uh, as laboratory animals that, that may have to stay in a cage and not be uh, loved and owned. So it's, it's really exciting because we both have the medical benefit, but these dogs have a lot of individual benefit too. And that makes me really happy. And Dr. Murphy, before I let you go, are there other areas of cancer research that is happening in both pets and, and humans that you're excited about? There's a lot of research going on in lymphoma, skin cancer, melanoma, for example. The most common type of cancer in dogs and cats is lymphoma. And there's a great deal of collaborative research going on, since that's also a very common cancer in people. What's called non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is the most comparable to the canine and feline forms. Mm -hmm. So we, we all benefit. Are there similar programs to what's happening at uh, University of Penn for those, or are they a little more scattered? They're a little bit more scattered. And each teaching institution has, has various types of research going on. But this is the only one I'm aware of that involves shelter dogs and breast cancer. Well, thank you so much, Liz. It's always good to have you here in the studio. Thanks. Nice to see you again. Dr. Liz Murphy has been Sound Medicine's veterinarian in residence. But here's a question she probably would rather not answer, even if she has an opinion. Who's smarter and more sensitive, cat people or dog people? For that, we turn to Jill Dittmeyer with this week's Sound Medicine Checkup. Professor Denise Costello loves animals. The publicity is about cats and dogs, but there's a huge data set out there with reptiles and birds, and I think I've had every kind, almost. She also teaches psychology courses to 600 students at Carroll University in Waukesha, Wisconsin. One part of the class is that we administer the 16PF, that's a standardized test developed by Raymond Cantell. That's the 16 personality factor test. So I thought, oh, wouldn't that be kind of interesting if I had the class take this and then give them a pet survey, you know, to see if they like dogs or cats or reptiles. 60% said they were dog people, 11% cat people, which Guastello says is in sync with the personality traits from the student's 16PF test. What I found was that cat people are more sensitive, and sensitivity is part of the introversion scale. So then that made them appear as if they're more introverted, but it's actually the sensitivity part, which is part of the introversion scale, that is making them be more introverted. Then dog people are more lively and outgoing and energetic, and that's part of the extroversion scale. Guastella believes you already know if you are a dog or a cat person, but these findings confirm that feeling and could help people make smarter choices when adopting a pet. So I think if people just hear this kind of research, then they'll realize, oh, no, I can't change my personality to want a cat. I'm a dog person. I'm not adopting the animal and giving it back. She also discovered a link between introversion and intelligence, but that means cat people are smarter than dog people. 
this surprised me because I'm a professor. I think I'm pretty smart, and I love dogs. And the cat people come out smarter <laughs> than the dog people. So guess what she's looking at in her next study? Who let the dogs out? Hold, 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 hold. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Jill Dittmeyer. You can listen to Sound Medicine anytime by signing up for our free weekly podcast. It's at our website, soundmedicine.org. Plus, we're at Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, Swell AM, and iTunes. Just search for Sound Medicine Radio Hour. Sound Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Welcome back to this final episode of Sound Medicine. I'm Barbara Lewis. At more and more hospitals, people with severe illness have the option to choose palliative care. Sometimes it's confused with hospice, but the big difference is with palliative care, patients don't stop treatment of the disease. It has more to do with managing pain, facing fears, and finding support. From Dallas, KERA's Lauren Silverman reports on one unique part of palliative care at Baylor Medical Center, music. Usually, it's IV poles being wheeled down hospital hallways. Today, it's a harp. Well, sometimes I take it home and play it for fun. But yeah, this isn't my hospital baby. Almost every day, Mary Liebus brings Joey, yes, the harp has a name, inside patients' rooms. Liebus is a music practitioner who plays for people with long-term illnesses in Baylor's palliative care program. As she delicately plucks the strings, Sherry Parks sits with a white blanket over her lap. Parks, who has colon cancer, remembers when Liebus first rolled in with the harp in August. I decided when she came in my room, I would really like to take a moment and hear this lovely lady play a few songs on the harp. Parks was moved when Liebus performed the classic song Tale as Old as Time from Beauty and the Beast. It's the song that we'll be playing when Parks' 17-year-old daughter is presented in a charity ball this spring. As a music practitioner, Liebus is trained to use music to help people relax or find energy. If patients aren't able to talk, she watches their monitors or their breathing for clues as to how they're feeling. I might start out playing a, a dance music and watch the monitors and see if, uh-oh, their heart rate's kind of going up, I better slow it down. Another musician is just down the hall. Judy Ritchie has been part of Baylor's palliative care team for almost a decade, and she says you never know what to expect. We face it all, everything from elation to death. Sometimes she'll play for patients who are in and out of the hospital for years, sometimes in their final moments. It's an honor to be present at that sacred time. The, the person who is trying to die is trying to let go. And so if we do something arrhythmic with long pauses, that helps them have a peacefulness and a reassurance that they can go and it's going to be okay. Today, Richie is playing a tone drum for Sabrina Booker-Murray. She has breast cancer that's spread to other parts of her body. But I'm thankful. I thank God that He's bringing me through, and I thank these ladies because they're very helpful. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit emotional. They have really helped me to relax and to forget my problems. Booker Murray had never been in a hospital where music was part of the healing and coping process. My mother-in-law last night called, and she, I said, someone's in the room playing the drums. She said, playing the drums? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, but... <laughs> it's soft music, Ma. A lot of times we think that patients need to have their symptoms managed with medications. But for many patients, symptoms can be managed with touch, with music. Marlene McHugh is assistant professor of nursing at Columbia and co-author of a 2013 study on palliative care. McHugh says for patients with long-term health challenges, palliative care teams that include doctors, nurses, music therapists, even chaplains, can decrease hospitalizations and increase patient satisfaction. We're going to see 
non-traditional health providers involved in the plans of care. And that is something new. As a traditional health care provider, McHugh is excited by the idea of a more holistic approach to coping with chronic illness. The greatest challenge, she says, is tight budgets at hospitals. So I think until we get private funding or resources or people privately pay, it will be limited, especially in areas where they don't have extra resources. Hospitals are choosing to finance palliative care programs. There are now more than 1,500 in the U.S. And even with scarce resources and limited research on music therapy, some hospitals are investing in song. Reporting for Sound Medicine, I'm Lauren Silverman. And finally this week... I knew that a child had died in the way that she paused and glanced at her husband when I asked, How many children do you have? Dr. Larry Kripe with one last grace note. She was 84 years old and had been referred for a low platelet count. Her husband stared straight ahead, his well-worn three-piece suit bunched at his waist. And then she said, four, but we lost our oldest, Margaret, Maggie, when she was 10. A car had struck her while riding a bicycle more than 50 years before, but I knew it felt like yesterday. My sister Bird's son, Brian, died 19 years ago this February. Before Bird died six and one half years ago, she would light a small flame which burned in front of a heart-shaped mirror when family and friends gathered. I am not sure why exactly. All these years later, we are aware of Brian's absence and the loss of what might have been. She may have wanted to invite the question rather than risk not being asked. I am old enough now that people ask me, are your parents still living? They are not. My father died of complications from lung cancer treatment. My mother died from a rapidly progressive dementia. It is not surprising, so answering the question is simple. I always pause, however, when asked how many brothers and sisters I have. My sister Mary died almost two years ago. So, I have six sisters, but two are dead. I can imagine there are questions I might ask my parents if they were alive, but I probably would not. There are, however, lots of questions I'd ask Marion Bird, especially about my parents. Parents are about who we were. Siblings help us make sense of how we became the people we are. Siblings can also help you make mid-course corrections. When I speak of the death of my sisters, I speak of an ongoing loss. I am telling a story about who I believe I'd be if I could finish my conversations with them. We rarely speak of the dying when we speak of loss. My parents, my sisters are alive. My parents, my sisters are dead. There is a gap. I believe we should fill this gap because we share who we are when we speak of the dying. My mother's mother, Ruby, died of a heart attack the summer before I started medical school. I accidentally saw the medical team trying to resuscitate her. The image of her naked body bouncing chaotically on a bed surrounded, assaulted may be a better verb, by a bunch of strangers still informs how I practice medicine 35 years later. We also share who we want to be at the end of our lives when we speak of the dying. When I tell the story, my mother died gladly. Her last voluntary act, I believe, was to refuse food and drink. My father died with great reluctance in the hospital, confident to the last that his oncologist would provide a remedy for the complications and his lung cancer. Bert and Mary were both at home with family and friends when they died. They each chose in their own way to forego further cancer treatment. The time we had, free from the distractions of visits to doctor's offices, infusion suites, or hospitals, was an awesome gift. All deaths were good deaths in their own way, but my father's caused more regret in my mind. 
Their choices spoke to an important truth. The way we die is often the final statement we make about how we chose to live. I believe if we shared more about how our loved ones died, and if we listened to the stories we shared, we would make different choices at the end of our lives. We would prepare for the future when we are leaving behind the ones we love, mindful that the legacy of our dying may diminish their loss. This is the final episode of Sound Medicine. It was 15 years ago that Pam Perry, Director of Public and Media Relations at the Indiana University School of Medicine, came up with the dream to start a public radio program that brought news about some of the cutting-edge research going on at so many of the nation's medical schools and hospitals. As a result, IU formed a partnership with WFYI, the public radio station in Indianapolis, which over the years has provided office and studio space, on-air promotion, and much more. We are so indebted to the IU School of Medicine faculty members who form the backbone of our production, Drs. Steve Bodwick, David Crabb, Kathy Miller, Ora Peskovitz, Eric Meslin, Aaron Carroll, Mike Cook, Larry Kripe, Teresa Rohr Kirschgraber, Steve Jay, Rich Frankel, Andrew Chambers, and David Flockhart. They provided expert insight and story ideas. They opened doors, and they corrected us when we got it wrong. Over the years, Sound Medicine has benefited from some incredibly creative and dedicated folks. Ellen Gullett, Lisa Forensic, Jeremy Shear, Dion Willis, Ann Ryder, Jill Dittmeyer, Steve Ali, and Kirk Butler. Also, Mary Harden, Eric Schock, Joe Studeville, Marty Lachance, Jeremy Spurgeon, Colleen Eudis, Carmel Roth, and Andrea Moraskin. Sound Medicine senior producer has been Nora Hyatt. Eric Metcalf produced our interviews. Chris Lieber recorded and edited the program and promos and chose all that great music for us. I'm Barbara Lewis, and with gratitude from all of us, thank you for listening. Medicine is produced by WFYI in association with Indiana University and the IU School of Medicine and is presented in part by IUPUI, fulfilling the promise. Doctor, doctor! So what seems to be the trouble? I feel like nobody listens to me. So what seems to be the trouble? Thanks for listening. For more information about anything you heard on this podcast, please go to our website, soundmedicine.org. I'm Barbara Lewis, wishing you good health.